Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me is my friend, uh, Dave Schrock. Dave, welcome back to the show, brother. Thanks for having me, brother. Good to be back. Yeah, good to be back. Can you catch us up on what's been happening? I think it's been a few months uh, you know, in your ministry and life and marriage and all that yeah. and any projects you've got going on. Yeah, it's been a, a busy few months. Uh, so certainly celebrated uh, Resurrection Sunday. That was a joy uh, with our church body here in Virginia. And uh, then after that, uh, went together for the gospel and then went from there up to Indianapolis to do some teaching and uh, had a seminar there with some local churches in Indianapolis and then came back home. Uh, actually went back out on the road again to visit with some other pastors and then came back at home again. And uh, just really glad to be home now and uh, to get involved back uh, <laughs> life here with my family. I have one wife and four kids and uh, we're in baseball season. So that's what's going on right now. And uh, looking forward to getting back into the room of preaching the gospel of John. Amen. Well, what a wonderful gospel that is. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's a great yeah. gospel. Can you tell us about this uh, new book you have, Brothers Were Not Plagiarists, a pastoral plea to forsake or for, to forsake the peddling of God's word? Uh, why you wrote it, how you hope it'll be received, all those fun things. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a book that the Genesis came last summer, uh, writing a few um, blog posts in response to just some of the things that happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, certainly the name Ed Litton and just some of the things that happened there with he and J.D. Greer, uh, and the really the collective shrug of the shoulders of uh, Southern Baptists when, you know, they found out that many of the messages that uh, were written and spoken by um, Ed Litton, you know, had to be taken down from the website and the conversation about uh, pulpit plagiarism came up and it was just defenses were made for that and excuses were made for that. There was a recognition that was wrong and yet it didn't seem to be a full recognition of just the, the repentance and the problem that that is. Uh, and so I wrote a couple articles uh, about that and had some conversation about that. And really, you know, just kind of coming through the winter, realizing it just seems like this is something that needs to be addressed in a more uh, fulsome way. Uh, and so sat down and, and wrote about a hundred page book uh, that hopefully will address this and not just kind of point out the problems, uh, but really to say, what is the office of the pastor? Uh, what is the office of, of preaching the word of God in the church? Uh, how do we rightly handle the word of God? Uh, and how do we do that in a way that is filled with integrity and honesty as we stand before uh, the people of God and preach his truth? Yeah. Yeah. I think when, I've always thought this whenever there's a, a situation like this, what it, are the proper and godly response to be is, am I guilty of this? Am I guilty of whatever? Yeah. And then yeah. examining our life in a, in a, you know, not in an introspective way, but in a, like, can I learn from this and how should I grow yeah. from that? Um, and I think that is that that's what I got out of your book. Like it's a, it's a good self-examination to really, test it but to the to the larger point i know we're going to talk about this and i and i don't want to i used to work for an organization i think i told you uh docent research group yeah and and you know i think it can be a helpful tool it can be we'll, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt in, in a mm -hmm. charitable way um to help pastors with their research and maybe even you know 
book, I think the book thing goes a little too far. That's that's my perspective on it. But um, in terms of like the research and things like that, providing help to them, I think I think probably this probably zeroes in on um, very uh, on on the issue, you know, because I think not it wasn't necessarily I don't think and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but at, at the heart of this discussion was kind of some of the work that docent does. Yeah, so I mean, certainly I'll mention docent and a few others that are out there. And as you said, it's a tool. And with any tool, a tool can be used rightly, can be used wrongly. So because that opportunity is there uh, and the resources are there, certainly it gives an opportunity for someone to really take the work of someone else and to present it as their own. And that's so much what's at the heart uh, of this very issue. Um, you know, you get into the fact that it's like it's bearing false witness when someone stands up and is preaching something that everyone thinks is the, the workmanship of that preacher, only to find out that this is actually a message from someone else. I mean, there have been too many conversations where I've had to find out that someone who heard a message, good, bad, or different, and then to find out later, actually, no, that was from someone else. And it just has this kind of, you know, sinking feeling in your stomach when it's like, oh, that wasn't what that, that man was preaching. Um, and so, yeah, again, I have not, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of docent that is there, but I certainly can imagine someone who would be tempted to really rely heavily on that so that the outline or beyond the outline, the illustrations or beyond the illustrations, even you get to close to the sermon manuscript, because there are websites out there that will produce sermon manuscripts for pastors to pick up and to use. Um, and it's like, yeah, at, at that point, there's going to be some who may use it well. Uh, but many others who who do not. Uh, and I think that's what this book is trying to get at, to say, what is the, the office of a pastor? Uh, and what's the difference between someone who can speak really well uh, and someone who is actually studying the Word of God, shows themselves approved before the Lord, um, before God's people? Those are really important matters. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really, really good. Because um, we we don't want to... We don't want to just pick on, you know, and and I just want to clarify for people when I bring up docent, like I was on the, at the time I was on the, the VIP team, the presidential team, I got special projects. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I did that for a few months and then I had a project in which uh, I I failed to produce the the work that I didn't know. And I thought I did. And um, unfortunately, you know, they give you a, but at the time, I don't know if they do now. This was a decade ago, mm-hmm. but I got let go. And mm-hmm. it was more like a part-time thing. But, you know, I think I think they do do. I think it's a helpful resource. I think it's a tool that, you know, if pastors want to use and they think that it's helpful, you know, they'll, they'll help them. And so, you know, I know they do a whole bunch of different things now. I haven't kept up with everything, but I do think this is a conversation that, that we that we do need to have. And I think that it's been something that's been brewing for a long time, even out of the Mars Hill type situation. I was at, I was at Mars Hill um, for a number of years, not a member, but just, you know, I was there and from Mm -hmm. Seattle, it was the church to go to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was there and, um, you know, unfortunately, Descent was at the core of that too, but Mm -hmm. Not the core of the issue of Marcel, but they were sure. providing help to them. And so, yeah, I think that this is a conversation, just to clarify for people what I'm saying, it's, it's a conversation that we need to, to have, not, not just for the SBC, but broader evangelicalism. Yeah, I mean, it really, really gets into, Dave, is what is the nature of a pastor? 
Like what are the qualifications that are there in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1? First Peter 5 would be in there as well. What are the qualifications of a pastor? And then how does the church know, right? Um, I mean, this is one thing that I think if someone is, you know, presenting themselves as being able to bring a really strong sermon each week, but most of that or part of that is coming from some other resource, that seems to be an open invitation to really question, is the person who's preaching that someone who's qualified according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Again, Paul's writing those to you know, his pastoral delegates um, there or his apostolic delegates so that the local churches would be able to discern uh, what are the qualifications that are there? Because the first thing that the word of God should do to get back to your earlier point is that it should be transforming the man who is preaching the word of God, right? It should be convicting them uh, of their sin. It should be renewing their heart. It should be changing them from the inside out. Uh, and I think that is something that any pastor who is thinking about this, any church is thinking about this, anyone who might read this book, that is a question that we should be asking is like, how are we standing before the Lord? And that's been something for me that I've had to do as well. It's like, okay, am I, you know, maybe this this isn't the issue, but are there other ways in which I'm falsifying uh, the ways that I'm serving and standing in the pulpit? And so we do need to look in the mirror and allow the word of God and the spirit of God to search us and then to, to repent, to humble ourselves, to, to continue to be conformed to the image of Christ by the word. And so I think, yeah, there's a larger conversation here uh, and one that gets at the very nature of what is the Bible's teaching on the office of the pastor and the expectations that the church should have for that pastor. Yeah. And you know, I, I was uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine told me about a situation at, at their previous church in California. They, they live on the East Coast now, on your mm -hmm. coast, you yep. know, the, the wrong coast. OK, <laughs> just kidding. Right. You know, I'm, right I'm, coast, I've, been on, I've been on I've been on the left coast, which is, you know, the whatever coast, I guess, you know, for my <laughs> whole life. But anyway, you know, and this issue has actually split the church. It's caused a significant fracture. And I. I, so I think even just not just what you're saying about pastoral ministry, I mean, the qualification, the lead of them is above reproach, you know, yeah. not a, not a perfect man, but a mm -hmm. blameless man, a man who is walking by God's grace, who can be an example in a first Corinthians, uh, what is it? 11, one imitate me as I imitate yeah. Christ. Right. Kind of way. And so, yeah, anyway, uh, Let's let's get into the nitty gritty some more. Um, yeah. You know, we've talked about that a lot. But what what is the sermon? Why does the sermon start in the preacher study? Are there particular helpful tips on preparing to study that you found? Yeah. So um, here's something that I mentioned in the book. So I mean, if anyone is familiar with John Piper, uh, his book, you know, Brothers We Are Not Professionals, is what I'm riffing on when I say Brothers We Are Not Plagiarists. Right. And I remember him saying many years ago uh, that it's the pastor and his study, not the pastor and his seance. Right. That there is a necessity for the preacher to be a man who proves himself by the study of the word of God. Uh, and certainly Paul commends the Bereans for the fact that they're fact checking him, if you will, uh, when he is preaching from the Old Testament, explaining the gospel according to the scriptures. And so they're testing him and asking the questions. Um, and so I think it's it's vitally important that the word of God is what is being preached. And the only way that the word of God can be preached truly is if during the week, uh, there is study preparing for that. And really, even that study should be built upon a lifetime of study of the Word of God. Uh, so mm. sometimes you ask the question, how long did it take you to prepare a sermon on Sunday? And I'd say 42 years. Right? I mean, that's how old I am, right? Or whatever, however old someone is, like all, 
all the experiences of that person's life, all the study, all the reading, all the praying, all that they have been taught of the word of God, that's all going into a sermon on Sunday, which is why it's important to have places for study uh, in preparation for the ministry. Uh, the call to preach is a call to study. And hopefully there are study skills that are learned in various seminaries or Bible institutes or local churches teaching future pastors how to study the word of God, because week in and week out, that is the trade uh, of what a pastor does to come to the word of God, to prepare a meal uh, that the the sheep of Jesus Christ can feed on and be nourished in Christ. Mm. It's really good. Somebody uh, asked uh, R.C. Sproul once, I remember, I think you might remember this too. You know, how long did it take you to prepare a sermon? Well, one hour and <laughs> 30 years. Yeah. They're like, what? So, yeah, just to your point, one hour or whatever, however many hours it takes you, plus mm-hmm. like your entire life, you know? Yeah. So, uh, which again is why the, the foundation of the, the person who's preaching on Sunday morning are those qualifications that cannot be just kind of stamped by going through a school. Uh, nor can they be just, you know, stamped out because they spent 20 hours in the word, 20 hours in the word, uh, maybe what is necessary during the course of a week to prepare a message, but that still depends upon a background knowledge of the scriptures so that that man has been proven that they can defend the word of truth and they can rightly handle the word of truth. Mm, that's good. You talked about the danger of speaking. Well, how does that contrast with the qualification of elders to be apt to teach? Yeah, I mean, this is where I would want to say speaking well for someone maybe even in their 20s. I mean, this is one of my great burdens for this book and this whole situation is that I think you can find some guys who are in their 20s who are incredibly gifted. They're just charismatic. They're able to communicate really, really well. But I would say by and large, most 20-somethings are not yet ready to be elders in the church. There are, you know, exceptions to that. Charles Spurgeon would be a glorious exception to that. He sees, you know, pastoring at the age of 19 or whatever. He was also reading Puritan theology all the way through his teenage years uh, in preparation for that. But I think by and large, most of the time, men who are going to be elders are those who are, you know, have spent a good number of their years studying the word of God, watching other godly men, being involved in the life of the church, uh, and then, you know, taking their 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever it may be. And so I think someone who's able to speak really well, they should be learning how to study the Bible really well, because it's holding fast to the word of truth. That's the language of, of Titus 1.9, that is going to be equipping and shaping elders for the long run. And my concern is that someone will get an opportunity to be a, a chief speaker and their gift of speaking puts them in a position where they're not quite ready for that because they haven't done the study. They haven't spent the time in the word of God. And so as time goes on, they become really dependent upon the work of others instead of their firsthand knowledge of the word of God and God himself mediated by the word. And so just thinking about that contrast there of the qualifications for an elder, it just takes time. Like, all of those qualifications in the pastoral epistles, there's a, um, a dependence or presupposition that it's going to take time for that. Now, again, uh, one church might be different than another. Uh, I think you can see this in the contrast between Timothy and Titus, that the church in Ephesus seems to be more mature than the churches there on the island of Crete. Uh, and so it may be that time is not, you know, 10 years plus a seminary degree to be an elder in a church. If the gospel has gone to a new location, it may be a person who has had a year or 
too of being a believer, but they have been taught, they have the word of God, and they are beginning to be the elders in that context. So context is going to make a great deal of difference in who are the qualified elders. Uh, the maturity of the church is going to make a difference. But I simply want to say that just to be able to speak well should not be the qualification. It is to teach well, uh, according to Timothy and Titus. Yep. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, my teens, I was reading systematic theology, biblical theology. Our, yeah. our youth group was teaching us, expo- preaching, youth pastors, preaching expository sermons, which I've said on this podcast, if you're a youth pastor and you're listening, do that. And then yeah. teach the kids systematic theology. They will eat it up. Or you might lose some kids, but, you know, you'll you'll get the serious ones, you know, and they'll stay. But, you know, then out of that, I uh, very quickly out of high school, I was, you know, pretty much, you know, went to community college, saw the need for things, had the knowledge, but I lacked, as you said, the maturity. I think I heard CJ Mahaney one time just said to guys, I think it was in your 20s, just focus on reading and studying and do that well. And then, and then in your thirties, maybe you can start, you know, yeah. uh, for me, I was, I, I would say as, you know, be, growing up in the church, I, I think that knowledge wise, I was ready. I think character wise, I wasn't. What that did is for the first few, especially first few years, probably five or six years, I was on this trajectory to go way up really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of that, that unfortunately my ego also went this way too, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and I thought that I, I was writing checks that quite frankly, my brain couldn't cash. Um, <laughs> isn't that funny? And, uh, but, but then, you know, God really humbled me about this is just before I was, I think I was 25 and uh, God just really, he really, really, it was, I, I remember where I remember where I was. I remember how I felt mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember, I remember, and it hurt, uh, to be, to be honest, I got brutally convicted by the Holy spirit. I mean, just totally, I mean, in, in, a, in a glorious way, I just really recognized how prideful I was and it just became a matter of, I was just totally selfish. I was living in a displeasing way. It was not only prideful, I was living in a displeasing way yeah. to the Lord and, I, I've often said that I would wait. I always tell people, just wait. Don't be in such a rush because once you start getting in, there's there's so much pressure, not the pressure. You shouldn't have the pressure to perform, but there is pressure in, in ministry uh, sure. from, from people. They expect a certain thing. And, you know, the pressure uh, becomes even more as you start preaching and teaching. Um, as you become yeah. more visible and, and, you know, those kind of things. And it's, and it's, I'm not talking about the platform. I'm just talking about like, I have guys that I talk with and they're struggling with issues. And yeah. I've had to tell you, if you can't not struggle with that particular, specifically pornography for about six months or a, a long time, mm-hmm. then you shouldn't be preaching at your church, you know, um, you know, there's, there's exceptions to that, but I'm just using that kind of as an, as an example out of my own, out of my own experience. Now, I appreciate you saying that, Dave. I mean, I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I mean, during my twenties as well, you know, 
my desire for ministry was strong when I graduated from college, age 22, had been involved with Campus Crusade for Christ and began looking at different, you know, youth pastor roles and things like that. And God in his kindness shut down all of those. Uh, so that basically I ended up being a janitor at a church for two years in, uh, in Tennessee and went through discipleship program there and then went on to seminary and didn't really become a pastor in any full-time capacity till near near 30. There are just lots of things that I needed to learn uh, along the way there. Um, and, you know, you look at the model in scripture and really there is this model of received ministry, ministry that is godly. It's not achieved ministry. It's always received ministry. Um, you know, you look at the way that whenever someone like Nadab and Abihu seek to promote themselves into the presence of God, it does not go well when Korah, who is a Levite, thinks that he can be a priest. It doesn't go well for him. Anytime that we are seeking to achieve something to have this entrepreneurial spirit, there's a lot of that, a lot of entrepreneurial spirit uh, among individuals today who feel like they have the gift and the calling to be able to go and to do something great for the Lord. Uh, but they should really want to make sure that the church recognizes that. And to have a church that is able to say, yeah, uh, we think this is good and right, or a church that will put the brakes on that. Um, to use just a really kind of silly example, as I think about this, uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, at Easter time, you know, my parents would give me uh, a chocolate bunny, right? Maybe you got one of these Easter chocolate bunnies. And it was always kind of disappointing when it was hollow, right? If ever there was like a solid chocolate bunny and you just bit into that and like the whole thing is chocolate, like that was so much better than the hollow chocolate bunny. And I think there are a lot of guys who are in ministry, once the pressures you're talking about happen, they get bit into and there's just emptiness on the inside. Uh, and what we need is for God to grow us from the inside out to be solid in Christ all the way through. That doesn't mean perfection. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't struggle. That doesn't mean that we have put all sins, but it does mean that there's a kind of track record and consistency that when the heat of life comes and we get melted down all the way to the core, there is Christ. Um, and I think what we can see often in ministry is there's this veneer that looks Christ-like, but there's something hollow inside. And maybe one of the contributing factors to that is that we put guys in ministry too quickly, and maybe they want to be larger, and so they try to make themselves bigger, and there's a hollowness that is there and a larger exterior veneer. Far better to be a small chocolate bunny that's solid all the way through than a really big one that gets bit into and there's just emptiness inside. Mm really good it's really good yeah just just to kind of share the uh, the other encouraging aspect of that story mm -hmm. uh you know i had a i had a dear i told you and i've shared about it on the show we had i had a dear mentor um that passed away from a stroke and he had he had a stint and a couple of years ago and yeah. it put his heart and he had a heart attack and he had covid and then he had a stroke and and died pretty much the same day he was he was involved at the WANA for about 20 years, a missionary throughout uh, Oregon and Idaho, and then a pastor at our previous church for about 20 years. And I remember coming out of the, the Mark Driscoll situation mm -hmm. and that I was there. I, I mentioned that and saw that. And it, and it, and it, my response immediately was, well, that could be pride could be, that could be me. Mm, uh, because mm. my whole pretty much my whole adult life i've been speaking doing this mm, and yeah. so i knew and people said oh you're you do well and so on and so forth and blah blah and and but i was just struck in that moment and and he had said uh mike had said you're not ready to you know you have this around this time i share this in my book 
but he he said you have an application you don't have a knowledge problem you have an application problem mm. and i knew right when he said that i knew he was right mm. um, and we walked through a process of just you know there would be times when do you think i'm ready now and i'm like i don't really know if i want to know the answer um but i would ask anyway and he would say no yeah. or yes and i would never ask i don't the only thing i regret about that is if you're going to do that then ask the follow-up what is it in mm. my life that yeah. isn't yeah yeah but i never wanted to go there because i was always <laughs> like do i really want to know do i really want to know but I, I i that's the only that's the only encouragement that i would say do that and then yeah. ask the ask the question and then what you have to do right by asking a question is you have to be willing to hear uh the the answer yeah. but i think that kind of just very practically and this was um this was around 2015 so there's been a a length of time where you know i'm growing but even even in growing he would tell me here's this guy i've been in ministry 30 years he would say i'm still growing in in, he was incredibly self-controlled. Um, mm-hmm. he, he, I never saw him get upset with anybody. Maybe there was mm-hmm. one time when he got, you know, the, the pastor came out, if you will, you know, with one guy in protecting the, the flock. But other than that, I never, I never saw him get any, there was never any, uh, never got angry, never got upset. He was very self-controlled. He had an excellent reputation. Um, and you know, it was, it was, he was a good example. And, um, just, I think that kind of, but he, he would never wanted to preach, but he was an incredible, he, he could, mm-hmm. he, he, he wanted to focus more on one-on-one discipleship. I think. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, we, we talked a lot about that. What, why is plagiarism a form of pragmatism? Yeah. I mean, so what's the definition of pragmatism? You know, it's whatever works, right? If something works, then it must be good. So, um, you know, if plagiarism works, if it draws a crowd and appears to feed them, if it is putting forward things that are true, it seems to be working. Um, you know, when I wrote the couple blog posts last summer, I had a couple pushback comments on them comparing uh, preaching that might be, you know, plagiarizing or using the works of others to the fact that musicians do that all the time uh, with Chris Tomlin or, you know, the songs that he'll write and, you know, Keith Getty, you know, City of Light, whatever. That's the same thing. And I think, again, that's a misunderstanding of the office of, of a pastor. Uh, I think even in those situations, there's an understanding uh, that those who are leading in song are singing the songs that are written by someone else. I think CCLI even puts something at the bottom of, of most screens or, you know, most churches are supposed to do that. Um, so there's a difference that is there. You know, there's a defense to say, look, you have plagiarism going on every single Sunday in your church whenever your Sunday school teachers are using the material of, of Lifeway or, you know, Crossway or whatever else. That, yeah, but the difference, again, um, is the office of a pastor, uh, the office of an elder. Uh, I have no problem with someone who is using the material of others in Sunday school class. In fact, that's a great way to begin to learn how to teach. But they are not then required to be the ones who are teaching and correcting and instructing from the Word of God in the congregation. Um, and so I think that's a, a key difference. So yeah. pragmatism, again, is this, it's the American philosophy. 
Uh, and so it's no surprise that it shows up in the church. And we have to fight against that to say, okay, what has God said? Because God has a standard. He has a, a written revelation of what he intends, what he expects. Uh, and let us not pretend that moving away from that, deviating away from that, even if it appears to work, whatever that means, uh, is going to go well. Um, because when it doesn't go well and it comes out that a pastor has been using the, the works of others for a long duration of time, it begins to raise questions about that individual, about the church, about the ministry, and could even raise questions about the uh, veracity and the validity of the gospel. Um, you know, obviously that won't be the case for every person, uh, but it certainly is not um, helping uh, to clear away uh, the things that would be stumbling blocks for people coming to the word of God, it produces stumbling blocks and that's not good. It's hmm. really well said. How does one avoid plagiarism in preaching or writing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it starts right with the heart, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, having a good footnoting mechanism though we may get to that and there's a, there's a need for that, but it's just the heart that says, look, I want to um, stand before God and whether my sermon is good or bad or indifferent, like I, I want it to be the work that I've done before the Lord. So, I mean, the, the reason why I'm a pastor, and I think this is why most men have become pastors, like they love the word of God uh, or they should love the word of God. It is not the position that they get. It's not the, the fringe benefits that are there. That's not the reason to be a pastor. The reason is you love the word of God and you love the people of God and you love the people by bringing them the word of God. And so I think there's just a posture of heart that says, okay, I want to study the word of God because I love it and I want to feed people well with it. Uh, and in doing that, it's like, I don't want to take the work of somebody else. I don't want somebody else to write my wife love letters. Right. Yeah. I mean, so yes, the bride of Christ is the bride of Christ. The, the church is not my bride. It is Christ's bride. But as a steward of the word of God, I want to make sure that I'm standing there um, in this flock that God has entrusted uh, me to serve with the other elders, uh, that I'm bringing them the word of God that has been studied and prayed over and thought through for them uh, and not just kind of created in some factory someplace else. Um, so I think those are, are some of the reasons uh, why the heart would want to do that. And then practically, you know, I wouldn't say that if you um, cite a verse, excuse me, if you cite um, a sentence or two from somebody in a, in a commentary and you don't say their name in the sermon that you are somehow guilty of plagiarism, I think there's a difference between speaking and writing. But I think practically it is wise to put whatever that quotation is in side your, your notes to recognize it later on if you were to turn that verbal message into a written message that oh, this yeah. came from somebody else so that's really important uh, mm -hmm. i think at the same time when i name drop uh in a sermon i'm endorsing that person because i usually don't have time to say uh well nt Wright is good about this but he's not so good about this um, when I'm quoting, I'm endorsing, and oftentimes I'm doing that on purpose because I would want someone to follow up on Charles Spurgeon or John Calvin or whomever else I might cite. So they would go and read that individual. At other times, uh, I might cite something, and I make mention of this in the book, that John Walton has said, maybe about the temple imagery or the, the temple structures in the Garden of Eden. That's really helpful. And I might find something that he has written and cite him, but not name drop. Uh, or put his name there because there are other things about him that I would want to be able to say, look, he's good here, but not good here. And so I think pastors learning the craft of preaching have to learn how to do that. 
Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that I try to spell out in the book of a constructive manual of thinking through what is a, a biblical, because I think we can learn some things from scripture on how the New Testament authors cite from the Old Testament and make allusions from the Old Testament. So we can make a biblical and a Christian approach to um, footnoting, if you will, annotation. I think that's really good. Uh, just another personal story. You know, I started this my next book in at a seminary and I had all sorts of notes from all sorts of things that I've written now. It's, you know, been a decade. And so I was going back and rewriting and I'm like, I need to check all these, these notes again, because if like, to your point, if, if I had just done that before, I wouldn't have to go and check the references. I wouldn't have to do it. And, and it'll just, if you're going to write an article or a book or whatever on a topic, just do yourself a favor and take Dave's advice because you know, you'll, you'll, you'll end up saving, you'll end up saving the editor who's going to edit your book, a, a lot of work. And then, you know, you're going to save yourself any, any sort of like accusation. Well, I'm not sure where that came from or yeah. any awkward conversation that you might have to have where you apologize because you don't know where that came from. And then, you know, you might've not cited it because yeah. you thought that you said it and you didn't end up saying it. And it's just, it's just better, uh, you know, just to, to do it, just to cite it to, even if you just put a small thing, you know, this came from here mm -hmm. in your, in your writing. And then, you know, different places have different things. If you put in parentheses, so-and-so said this, and then the quote, or you footnote it. Mm -hmm. I think that footnoting is probably the best way to do it. Although you can do it in a number of ways in a blog article. Yeah. So, you know, um, same in a book footnote, always footnote, not end notes. <laughs> and notes are no, and notes are no footnotes. That way people can see it and they don't have to go to the end of the book. And anyway, that's a preference, but yeah, really good brother. What is a, what is a sermon team? How, how can that help address the issue of uh, plagiarism? Yeah. So I think different people mean different things by sermon teams. And in some ways, I'm not quite sure what people do mean by them or how they function. Um, because I think on one end, and it could be uh, a man who is speaking, who has lots of different voices kind of funneling their ideas into his. And so I think that's probably the least helpful. On the other side, I mean, at our church, we want to foster a fraternity of preachers, right? So we do a, quite a bit of training here for our elders and those who aspire to be elders so they can handle the word of God well. Um, and so we are um, learning together. Uh, spurring each other on in that the Simeon Trust Workshop is something that I've gone to many times. We bring other elders with us for that uh, because we do see the goodness of having a camaraderie around the word of God, spurring each other on in that work. So those are maybe two different sides. And then somewhere in between, you know, it's always good. I mean, we should be studying the Bible in community. We should be learning in community. Um, you know, and I know different uh, multi-site churches. Uh, there was one in Louisville for a time. They would all preach the same um, passage of scripture. They would get together and study uh, that scripture together, and then they would do that on their own. Uh, I mean, so that gets into a, an ecclesiological question about the goodness or not so goodness of multi-site churches. We can have that conversation for another day, but <laughs> at least they're doing their own work, it appears, but learning from one another of what they study. There, there's goodness in that too. Um, but again, it can probably veer too much in one direction to say that one voice that 
there, maybe the strongest, such that his way of reading the Bible now becomes the way that everybody does that. And individuals can do that too, if they're just copying and pasting, you know, the, the commentary that they like best, or just being highly dependent upon someone else. And then on the other extreme, just somebody who's hyper individualistic, that's probably not good either. Like we all depend upon others and there's a healthy way to do that. And so at least in our church, we want to foster a fraternity of individuals who show themselves accountable to God and approved workmen in the word of God uh, who are teaching at different levels. So that Sunday morning from the pulpit, Sunday morning and Sunday school, different evening Bible studies. Uh, and we want to help guys move and grow in that. Hmm. That's really good. I think, I think the only thing I'd probably add to that is, Hey, you know, like it kind of builds on what you're saying. And that, that would be since I'm not a pastor just, or an elder, but just, just if somebody had a question, uh, have, maybe have a group of guys in the church or, you know, with your elders be like, Hey, you know, I'm going to say that this, and I've heard other pastors do this. Hey, I'm going to say mm-hmm. this. How does, how does that land? Yeah. Um, you know, how do you think that lands? How's that land on you? Or what is that? What do you think that, how, how's that come across? Um, yep. I think that would, that's helpful. I think that's especially true with writing, um, asking, getting a bunch of people with different, you know, life experiences, you know, uh, Hey, how, how's this, especially like a personal article that you might write sure. or something like that. How's this going to land? How's this going to, how's this coming across? Is this coming across in the way that I'm meaning it? Or is it, you know, coming across yep. in, a, in a different way? Dave, I think that's helpful. And I think, you know, I would want to balance that with, with one thing. And I say this kind of cautiously, but yeah. I think there's a way to become a slave to that, especially in our cultural moment where we're trying to strip authority. Like, so there's been so many abuses of authority that we can try to get rid of authority in general. I think that's just our cultural moment. Um, but there is a place for good authority. And ultimately, whenever uh, a man is preaching the pulpit, the authority is the word of God. But because he's heralding the word of God, there's an authority that he should be speaking with that is humble before the Lord, um, but that isn't dependent upon kind of groupthink to, to get to that message as much as what does the word of God say? Uh, and as he has perfectly considered that, how is he leading and teaching the people of God to do that? That's why it matters so much that he is qualified, according to the scriptures, that the people can recognize that. Because a pastor often is going to have to say things that are unpleasant to the ears. Uh, the alternative is just tickling the ears. And so I think you're right. It's helpful to get a perception of how something lands. And I can see how that would also kind of lead to a kind of enslavement to that that would actually strip away the power of the preached word. Mm. Also, I think it like to your point, and I appreciate it, uh, what you're saying, I think I hear is like a fear of man. Like, oh, well, if I if I say this and people might leave, uh, should I basically not say it? Well, if it's grounded in the text, you have to say it, mm-hmm. right? You know, yep. or you have to write it or whatever. Um, that's part of the job as well of a pastor to contend for the faith and sure. to correct opponents of, of the faith. Um, so yeah. that's a, that's a good, that's a good. And I think a needed word because, you know, even myself, I've had to just to be brutally honest, like I've had to grow in this and um, maybe even out of this last six months of going through biblical counseling, I've realized mm-hmm. maybe I haven't been as bold in some ways in my own ministry on podcasts and some, some things, 
uh, and maybe I've had some fear of man. And, and it's a good thing to recognize, uh, you know, um, that we need to do, there are fault, there is false teaching out there. And part of our, part of our job, if you're going to be in ministry of any kind, you have to be able to confront it and you have to be able to speak up for it and in a truth and love kind of way. And at second Timothy, I'm always going, I always reminded of second Timothy two twenty four, you know, to be patient and, and mm -hmm. so that, so that consciences and people that are in air might, they might come to know the truth. Right. And that needs to yeah. be said too, which is what I hear you basically essentially saying too. Yeah. Try to. Yeah. Very good. Why is it important that when our when using our words we should use scripture? How how should that under understanding affect um, our preaching of the word? Yeah, I mean, I think this gets just into a much um, deeper question of like what what kind of preaching does scripture lead us to to do? Right. So I'm I'm convinced and convicted that biblical exposition is is not only a good way of preaching, but it's what's modeled in scripture. Right. I mean, an example of this would be, you know, when Ezra and Nehemiah are reading the word of God and then it's either being translated or explained by the Levites there. Um, you can see the way that Hebrews' model sermon is reading from the Old Testament, then explaining that. So I think there's a, a biblical argument for biblical exposition for exposition. Um taking it one step away from that, I simply say that the power of the preached word is the word. Uh, it's not our illustrations. It's not how good we can interpret or do it. It's like the word of God is what is powerful. And so I think we want to fill our pulpits. We want to fill our mouths when we're preaching with as much Bible as we possibly can. And I think if we trust more deeply in God's word doing the work, that might then free us from a captivity to having the best illustrations, the best introductions, the best app. You know, let the word do the work. Uh, and if we have confidence there, it may mean that all I can do this week is lay down a bunt and run as fast as I can to first base, right? Mm. I may not go over the fence this week. And that's okay if it's the word of God. Uh, sometimes you swing uh, and, and you do miss. But if it's the word of God, uh, then you can trust that he will accomplish his purposes with his words. I think that's why we need to fill our sermons with, with the scriptures. Mm, so good. Really good. Why why are some ways that pastors can continue to grow in the craft of preaching? Yeah, so I mean, this word is biblical, but it was taught to me by David Helm and the guys at Simeon Trust, and that is, you know, progress, right? So first Timothy 4:15, we are to show ourselves as those who are growing and progressing in our handling of Christian life and, and certainly doctrine and the word of God. And for me, uh, over the last seven years now, going to Simeon Trust workshops have been one of the best ways I've grown because I feel like they've given me tools even tools that have exceeded what I got in seminary to handle the word of God on a week in and week out basis, such that there's a rhythm. Like it's Monday. I know what I'm doing on Monday. I'm not writing the sermon on Monday. I'm just beginning to read the text Tuesday. I'm outlining the text. I'm doing the structural work, looking at the original languages. Wednesday, Thursday, I'm continuing to think over the text, begin to read some commentaries then about the text. Friday, Saturday, I'm writing the text uh, based upon those things. So there, it's been helpful to just 
get some of those tools and those rhythms that I've learned from others to make preaching sustainable 52 weeks out of the year, which is not to say that I preach 52 weeks out of the year, but as a pastor, we are pastors 52 weeks out of the year, whether we preach 40 times or 45 times or something more than that. Uh, so it's necessary to have kind of a process that we have. So we're not creating a new process every single week. Uh, mm. I think this is where expositional preaching helps as well, that you're not coming up with new sermons. You read Charles Spurgeon, his lectures to his students about he's laboring over what text he's going to preach the next day. I was like, don't do that. Like only Charles Spurgeon can wait till Saturday and come up with a glorious message based <laughs> upon whatever text he's laboring over at that point. Uh, for most mortals, just knowing the next passage in the book of, that you're preaching is really, really helpful. Um, mm. And so I think those are some helpful things. Getting feedback. Right. So it's good to get feedback from other elders or those who are studying the word of God from other pastors along the way. All of those things uh, can help us to grow in the craft of preaching. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I do pulpit supply, as you know, and one of the things my wife has actually commented specifically on this. I really appreciate how you just you don't say you don't push back. You don't. not that I push back on my wife, but, mm -hmm. you know, uh, too much. But uh anymore but you know she just appreciated she told me you just sit there and listen you know hmm. and let me say whatever i want to say and i'm like who am i to not you're the one that sat there and listened to the thing and it's like it, it makes me think even when you know i'm listening to my pastor preach mm -hmm. it's like you know um i might not i might critique it and be like hey there's something you know, that I think that could be said better or whatever, but it makes me, it gives me, it gives me a lot more pause now, I think, mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, he put at the time, he put in the effort. Am I, am I just critiquing the sermon to mm -hmm. critique the, the message that, you know, he studied and prepared for, or am I trying to learn and grow in in the craft and handling mm -hmm. God's word, and I mm -hmm. and I do think it needs to be said. We Christians should, and I make that case in my book, as you know, for that. And as you listen to sermons, to to learning how to better handle the word of God, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's good. But I think it's also good to come back and say, especially to guys who listen to and do preach and or write or anything, just try to turn that part off and realize, hey, how would you like somebody to do the same thing with your sermon? And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm in the past, I've been as guilty uh, and, and got convicted about this, you know, I'm probably not mm -hmm. as gracious and mm -hmm. as, as I would want others to be. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's not just like listening to criticism. It's also how, we, if we are critical, um, I think that we do need to repent. No, I think it's good work, brother. Yeah. Well, brother, where, where can people go to find out more about you on social media or on your website? And I know you have some fun things to say about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I'm a pastor in Northern Virginia, right? So uh, if you're in that area, come and visit us at Occoquan Bible Church. Um, you know, I teach in Indianapolis, uh, Indianapolis Theological Seminary. So if you're looking for a, a seminary to, to learn to grow and you're in and around Indianapolis, we don't have things online. Uh, so it's all local there. Uh, come there. And then I do have a website, davidschrock.com, uh, where I write occasionally as well. And you're on Twitter, but you don't follow me. I am on Twitter. I, uh, 
<laughs> I'm not an active participant on Twitter, but I do have a Twitter handle. Yes. Do you want to tell us what that is, brother? Just David Schrock. It's wonderful. Well, you know, there's a lot that we could dive into. And as I always say on this podcast, I know our, our listeners and those who watch this are probably tired of me saying it ad nauseum, but it's true. We can get into so many things about this topic and it's been a good conversation just as we wrap it up. Though, do you have a few takeaways, brother? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say, you know, trust uh, the word of God to do the work in the pulpit. I mean, if you are not a pastor and you're in a local church, I mean, you should look for a, a church where the word of God is faithfully preached and trust that that word is sufficient for your soul. Uh, I think if you are a pastor, trust that the word will do the work um, and not, you know, yeah, we want to be um, making clear illustrations, applications, and, and doing all the work that's necessary to shine the light on the word, but it's the light of the word that the people need. So trusting in that. And then I think at the same time, trusting God for who he has made you to be. Uh, in our digital age, we can be so enamored with those who are in front of us. Uh, those who get, you know, all the likes and the follows and the invitation to speak in big venues and all the rest say, you know, that's not the goal, right? The goal is to be faithful to the Lord and to trust wherever he has put us and however he has made us. I mean, Paul will himself say, you know, I, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I think that's a posture of the heart that we need to have as well. And that would prevent us from going down a lot of wrong paths towards pragmatism, towards kind of bending things around uh, so that we would try to push ourselves up in ministry. No, uh, we can be content with where the Lord has us and we want to be as faithful as we can there. And if the Lord enlarges opportunities for us to go and to serve, well, we can do that, uh, but we really don't want to be in a venue that is larger than what God has created us for. Uh, so I think if we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, uh, that's a really healthy place to be. Mm. Really good word, brother. Really good word. Well, guys, we've been talking with my friend David Schrock today about his book, Brothers, We Are Not Plagiarists, A Pastoral Plea to Forsake the Peddling of God's Word. It's available from... Uh, Founders Press. I encourage you to pick up the book and also go ahead and check out our friends at Founders, Tom Askell and the team there are doing great work. So David, thank you so much for your time, brother. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.